And hello and good morning to you, Crossview Church. Uh, I'd like to welcome you here, and I'd also like to welcome our friends at Wood County Jail who are joining us via live stream. We're glad you're with us here as well. And happy Mother's Day to all those mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers. We are so glad you are here. The calling of a mother is so critical, and we're seeing that more and more each day, and so we're glad you're here this morning. Where is your hope level this morning? If there was a gauge on your soul that measured hope, what would it read today? Are you feeling maxed out at 10? You're feeling very, very hopeful? Are you kind of in the middle? Are you kind of more towards the lower end? Where is your hope this morning? Being as Mother's Day, I interact with lots of moms and grandmas and great-grandmothers, and I hear a lot about the heartfelt joys, the heartfelt loves, but also the struggles and concerns and fears. What kind of world will my child, grandchild, great-grandchild grow up in? The world feels so much different than it used to be, and in fact, a case could be made that the world is very different than it was just five years ago. But on this Mother's Day, this morning, my prayer is that we become infused with hope because the gospel is an unbelievable message of hope and today the gospel of Jesus Christ is alive and well. The gospel has the power to transform lives and to transform worlds for the glory of God. God does not become less in times of difficulty. God becomes more. Today's message is a message of hope, not only for all mothers in the room, but it's a message of hope for every single one of us. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn it on or open to Romans chapter one. Romans is towards the end of the Bible. You go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, You get to Romans, if you hit 1st or 2nd Corinthians, you went too far. It's also on page 911 in our worship center Bibles, if you're using those. And you could also follow along in our church center app as well. As we dive into this text, I want us to understand what is really, truly happening here. In the first century, when the book of Romans was written, Rome was the capital of the entire world, hence Roman Empire. It was a city about one million people, and most scholars believe that the church at the time was about a hundred people, scattered in little house churches across this huge city. So you had the city of Rome, which was like a million people, and then the church that the Apostle Paul is writing this to is roughly about a hundred people scattered around the most powerful city in the world at the time. And it was led by one of the most powerful yet evil rulers of the time. There's an emperor named Nero who was a terrible persecutor of Christians and insanely an evil man. The things he did to his own family, to his own mother, in fact, is absolutely horrible. And the things that he did to Christians was beyond imagination because he was threatened He was threatened by this group of 100 mostly 
lower class people who were following a leader who had died and reportedly had rose from the dead and now sits in heaven. It gets even better. Now we are reading this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to these 100 people around 50 AD, and he wrote it to these people who were in these small churches all over Rome, this church that Peter started several er years earlier. And look what the Apostle Paul says in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. The faith of a hundred people in a city and a culture more opposed to the gospel and Christianity than anything weak in this day and age could imagine is being reported all over the world. The faith of the hundred is being reported all over the world and they did not have any internet. A hundred people in a city hostile to Christianity whose lives were so impacted by Jesus and his mission that they were living out their faith in such a way news was spreading all over the known world. These faithful 100 were bound to Jesus in love and allegiance and they began to live out the kingdom of God in their everyday lives in such a way word was spreading. And with that word spreading came hope. With that word spreading came transformation. And this Roman Empire was starting to be transformed because of the faith of a hundred people living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. This letter is easily one of the most important letters in the world, not just because of what it says to us today, but because of what it says about this faithful group of 100 living in a very difficult, dark hopeless situation, yet living out the gospel of Jesus Christ and bringing hope in such a way it's transforming the world. Today we live in our own version of Rome, don't we? Ten-year-olds are ending their lives by suicide. One in three young people don't want to face tomorrow. The schools in the United States are becoming among the most dangerous places in the world. There are economic threats, there are terrorist threats, there are threats to our health. Republicans and Democrats and polarized politics do not offer any transforming hope or help. And it seems like any time we hang hope on something that is of this world, we become sorely disappointed. Only Jesus can help us now. Only Jesus can help us now. And you know what? That's good news because Jesus is more than enough. The message of the book of Romans and the message to us today as well is that Jesus is more than enough to conquer and infuse hope and life into anything we see or experience or encounter in this life. The gospel of Jesus is the simple and only effective solution to the brokenness in our world and the brokenness in our own lives. And Paul knew this, so he wrote this letter. But he didn't just write this letter. He gave his life to this cause. So let's take a look. We're going to see the hope of Jesus lived out in Paul's soul. Look at verses 8 to 10. 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers and at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. You can see that this gospel hope overflows out of Paul's heart onto these people that he longs to see. And you can just see by looking at some of the phrases he says here. He says, God whom I serve in my spirit. He's saying, I serve God with the center and the core of all that I am. That Jesus Christ, the risen king, is residing in my life and seated on the throne of my heart. And he is making all things known to me, and as he does, I am enthroning him as my God and my Savior. Everything in my life is subjected to the lordship of Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he has done. See, Paul knows this Jesus, and he's blown away by him. He goes on to say how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all time. Prayer was like oxygen to Paul. He lived this life connected to God in his soul. Prayer was not like this boring transactional duty of I say these things and God will do these things, I say these things. No, prayer was like we talked about in our prayer series. It was a personal connection to God for Paul. It was this lifeline of how he lived He stayed in that place, and he lived in that place of the presence of God because he knew Jesus. And when he looks at the people in this church, he sees that they're doing the same. And as they do the same, he says, I I regularly bring you before the throne of God and ask that he empower you and be with you. There's a strong soul connection with God that is offered to any human being that invites God into their lives. Pastor Lee Eklov tells a story of a lady in his church named Kathy. And Kathy had a son who was severely developmentally disabled. And he was in a wheelchair and he couldn't communicate. And Kathy heard of a practice that they did at their church where the elders would pray for those who are sick. They would anoint them with oil and pray for those who are sick. It's a practice we see in the book of James. It's a practice we do here at Crossview Church. And this mother went to Pastor Lee and said, would, could we gather the elders of the church and pray for my son? And Lee said, of course. And so they set up the time. It came, it, it was set up. They went into the room to pray for this lady, Kathy's son. And the, the mom, Kathy, said, I just want you to know, I don't know what God's going to do here. And there's no expectation in my mind that my son will be completely healed after this. But I just feel in my gut this is something we have to do. And so they did, and they prayed for their son. A few years later, their son is a young adult. He's in a care facility, and Kathy went to visit her son as she regularly did, and as she went there, the nurse stopped and said, hey, I just want you to know, we're making some great progress in your son's communication. And she said she was blown away. She never heard that before. And she went into the room, and her son was there, and he started to express excitement when he saw her which never happened before. And then she, the nurse showed Kathy how if they ask him yes or no questions, he'll point to a green card for yes 
and a red card for no. And so they said to him, do you see that your mother's in the room? And he pointed to the green card. And they said, are you excited to see your mom? And he pointed to the green card. And Kathy said, I've never, ever, ever experienced the fact that he noticed me, let alone expressed his excitement for me. She called Pastor Lee and said, do you remember when we prayed for my son? This morning was an answer to that prayer. You see, moms, when God puts something on your heart, don't let yourself, don't let the ways of the world, don't let the enemy talk you out of something that God is nudging on your soul to advance the kingdom of God because it's utterly important. He can do amazing things through what he speaks to your heart. So be encouraged this morning. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit tugging at you in those things. Not only was the hope of Jesus alive in this mother's soul and Paul's soul, but Paul goes on to talk about the hope of Jesus being alive in the church. Look at verses 11 to 13. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Let me qualify that and talk about that a second. If you've been around the church a while, you've heard of these things called spiritual gifts, which are true and real. The Bible says that each Christian is given a spiritual gift to encourage one another, things like teaching or mercy or prophecy or these different kinds of gifts, and those are real. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about that here. He says what he's talking about here as he goes on in verse 12. He said, what is this spiritual gift? That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He's explaining this mysterious, special, sacred thing that happens when Christians come together and they're with one another. When a Christian is with another Christian, and the Holy Spirit that indwells this Christian is among the Holy Spirit's presence in this Christian, there is a mutual strengthening and encouraging that happens. And Paul calls this a special gift, a mysterious yet sacred and special way that God has placed in the lives of believers to encourage one another when we get together. And Paul says, I long to see you, to see that happen. He's desperate for it. You will not get that kind of spiritual encouragement and life anywhere in the church, anywhere else but the church. It can't be replicated in this world because it's a gift from the spirit of the living God. This spiritual gift is so special and so needed to infuse hope in fellow Christians. And at times I see Christians stiff-arming this much-needed gift. See, there's a plan that our enemy has for every believer. The Bible says the plan of the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy each believer. And one of the ways he starts to do that is to isolate you, to pull you away from the church, to not go to church. I want to address some things related to this, and, and I go full uh, disclosure. I know I'm preaching to the choir on this one because you're all here at church, right? I totally get that. 
I'm not referring to any of you because you are here. But I want to address this fully because there's this trend that's emerging that I feel is a lie from the pit of hell that's telling many of our young people, in fact, that the gathering of the church is not necessary and the gathering of the church is not even essential. And all of us can be tempted by that voice. Many of us hear these phrases that I'm going to share with you and talk about And as followers of Jesus, we must never, ever, ever, ever write off the church for good because that's the enemy's plan. And I've seen too many people give up on the church too quickly. And full disclosure, it does not go well. Common phrases we hear that keep us, that stiff arm, this special gift Paul is talking about are this. Here's the first one. The church is never supposed to hurt people. Let's talk about this. Because there's a wide range here, right? If we're talking about abuse, then that statement's absolutely correct. There's no place in the church for any kind of abuse. And if abuse happens in a church, those responsible should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. I think all of us would agree on that. But there's this spectrum. You have abuse on this end, and on this end you have someone looked at me wrong in church, and I took it as an offense. And you have everywhere in between. So as a preacher, it's hard to give a a blanket statement to each of these things because we handle these things different. So there's no doubt wisdom is needed here. But I want to talk about some of the lesser things. Because to be honest, I see an awful lot of people writing off church for some of these lesser things. This hurtful relational conflict. That should never be in a church? Really? Why does relational hurt happen in a church? Because we are fallen human beings. We are imperfect. We have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are justified, we are declared righteous, that's called justification, and then we begin this process of what we talked about called sanctification, it's a process where we are becoming more and more holy, but that process is messy, and in that messiness we do horrible sinful things still, we're still tripped up by sinful practices. And so when we bring that into a context of people, of course, people are going to get hurt. There's going to be conflict. The New Testament in life, nowhere teach, anytime you get a group of people together, it's going to be pain-free. So why hold the church to an impossible standard? And worse yet, make a decision to stiff-arm this gift of grace that's in the presence of one another because we are hurt by something that we should deal with. The only place people gather and there's no conflict whatsoever is a cemetery. It's the only place it happens. But here's the hopeful thing. As Christians, we can trust God, even in relationally painful things, that he uses relational conflict to teach us, to draw us closer to him, to make us more like Jesus. Sometimes God wants us to go through conflict, to teach us and grow us and show us how to be an agent of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's how the church matures. 
That's how we mature as the bride of Christ. And there's conflict in the church all through the Bible. Jesus' own disciples hurt each other, had relational conflict. And the Son of God is right there in their midst. Relational conflict is part of God's curriculum to make us more like Jesus. And it's not fun. But we don't walk away from potential relational conflict. It's what we do with that conflict is that matters. More on that in a second. Another phrase I hear a lot is the church is a bunch of hypocrites. And I get what people are saying when they say this. But when you think about it, should this really surprise us? Yes. The church is a bunch of hypocrites. It's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Because we are all in process of being made like Jesus into his image. And when we look at and we see that that's Jesus, that's who I want to be, and we're not fully there yet, and we do things that stumble along the way, it can look very hypocritical. It's not possible for us to live out the perfection of Christ in this life, in the here and now yet. We're growing into this. We're growing imperfectly, surrounded and showered by the mercy of God. And sometimes, yes, hypocrisy is going to come inside of us. I love Jesus. I know what I'm supposed to, how I'm supposed to live. I'm supposed to model my life after him. But yet as a sinner, I still fall woefully short. And then I got to get up here on Sunday and talk to you about it. I feel like a hypocrite most days. If you are in the church and you're not perfect, there's some hypocrisy in your life. So what do we do with that? We do what Paul says. Forgetting what's behind, I press on in the grace and the forgiveness and the power of God. And I say, God, please make me more than what I am now in your presence. Every Christian is a hypocrite because they're all in the process of being made more like Jesus. And every human being is a hypocrite in need of God. So let's get over this one. The last one is, I'm into Jesus, but I'm not really into church. Now this one's interesting. It has lots of different side trails to it. I like to read a lot about what the young people are thinking these days and talk to them about it. And I talked to one young person who when they talked about a statement, they were kind of coupled it with the comment that I'm just not about organized religion. That was the phrase that came out. I'm not about organized religion. And, and I asked what they meant by that, and they had a lot of great points. I appreciated what I learned. But I asked the question, would you rather be part of organized religion or would you rather be part of disorganized religion? Because those are your choices. And when we look at world history, disorganized religion did a whole lot more damage than organized religion, one pastor's opinion. And usually what's happening when people make this statement, especially those who are younger, they're, they're talking about a suspicion of institution. And it's not just the church, but they're suspicious of every institution, government, school, whatever it may be. But when people blanket this statement, I'm into Jesus, but I am not into the church, with all due respect... And I appreciate the honesty, but with all due respect, they don't fully understand Jesus 
and they don't fully understand the church. Jesus would never, ever, ever condone walking with him and writing off the church for good. It wouldn't even be something that could be entertained because biblically it's impossible. When you give your life to Jesus, you are placed in the family of God. You are placed in the church. It's something that happens of the spirit and you have no control over it. And when we gather, what we're doing is we gather, we're a physical expression of what the Holy Spirit did when we came to Christ as brothers and sisters. You can't separate that. Jesus and the Bible teach us that relating to Jesus and being in a family of Christian brothers and sisters is one in the same. And Paul is saying if you blow that off, you're missing this amazing spiritual gift to help you in your walk with Jesus Christ. So don't let that happen. You can't separate following Jesus and being in his church. As one who has been hurt by the church in the past... Numerous and deep. I'm telling you, the answer is not to write off the church for good. The answer is go to church and deal with the pain. I'm amazed at how many people, including Christians, do this in a conflict. They have a conflict with someone and they say, I'm just never going to talk to them again. And they walk away and they say, I'm not going to deal with it. Let me just be a voice in that. That doesn't work. It doesn't work for you. It doesn't go away. When we handle conflict like that, you know what we do? It's like being in a swimming pool and taking a beach ball and just pushing it under the water and saying, it's gone. It's going to pop up somewhere. And it's going to pop up in places you don't want it to pop up. So it's not that we don't have conflict. It's that we learn to deal with that in a healthy way. The gospel calls us to be agents of reconciliation. And you can't be an agent of reconciliation if there's no conflict that separates you. That's why God set up this thing called the church. And cutting yourself off from the whole church is not a biblical option. So what do we do when we're hurt by the church? First, let me say, typically when we say we're hurt by the church... Oftentimes it's one person in the church or a few people, but we call it with a big broad brush, so we need to be cautious about that. But what do we do when we're hurt by the church? Remember this thing called lament that we talked about here at Crossview? Where we go to God first and foremost. We turn to him. We don't go to other people and start ripping on other people. We turn to God and we pour out our heart. We pour out our complaint and we ask him to help us And we trust that he's going to do this. And then we seek wise counsel. Because I don't know what type of hurt we're talking about here. And there's different actions for various degrees of pain. But we seek that counsel. And if wise, we pursue that reconciliation. Now, there are some relationships you should always be distant from for various reasons. But those are not the norm. They're the exception. That's why I say wise pastoral counsel, I think, is a good thing. But why am I going on and on about all this? Because Paul is describing something amazing in verses 11 to 12. I long to see you that may, I may impart this gift. And what is this gift? That you and I would be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Something is released here. 
Something empowers us to live in the world we live in. And some of the most loving, most inspiring, most encouraging, most giving, most uh, self-sacrificing people I've met are in the church. They're in this church. And they bring healing when we're hurt. Writing the church off forever is not an option. Because what Paul is talking about here is that God can heal and restore you when that happens at church. You can receive healing here. You receive restoration here. There can be forgiveness. And people brought back together. Now you might say, when I go to church and I interact with people, I don't feel this spiritual thing that happens. We have to be very careful Feelings are a wonderful thing, but we have to be very careful. They don't dictate every part of our faith. Because God's word says something spiritual and sacred happens when we interact with one another as believers. You are valued and needed in the family of God. And the family of God needs you to bring that spiritual empowerment. Don't let the enemy talk you into writing off the church in moments of pain or confusion, or doubt. So Paul says there's this hope inside of him, there's this hope in the church, and then he goes on to say the hope of Jesus is seen as the gospel interacts with this broken world. Look at verses 14 to 15. He says, I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now Paul turns his gaze to this broken world that desperately needs Jesus. And he gets it and he's so motivated because he was one of those desperate and lost and broken people. And Jesus invaded his life with a grace and a mercy and a love that was beyond his comprehension. And it totally radically changed him to the point where he said, every single fiber of my being is now going to be put towards taking this gospel and what Jesus uh, has done and who he is to the entire world. He wants to share this message with all, as many people as he can, regardless of their, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their life circumstances, regardless of their past decisions, both poor and good Scholars tell us Paul has this deep longing here. And he has a longing for both unbelievers who have never heard and for believers who know. Paul is thinking about initial evangelism, telling people about who Jesus is that don't know him. And he's also talking about strengthening those who have a relationship with Jesus already. You see, both people need the gospel. Look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This gospel is powerful because it is what brings people to Jesus. And it's our only hope. And when he says first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, he's not indicating time there. He's not saying, like, we take it to all the Jewish people first, and then when we're certain that all the Jewish people have heard, now we can take it to those that aren't. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's inferring something else. He's inferring that the Jewish people throughout generations have been waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting for one to come who would save their people from their sins. And he's saying, Messiah is here in Jesus Christ. That's what he means by that. Look at verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it has been written, the righteous will live by faith. Here is the hope for all the world. Jesus and what he did is the only true hope for people and our world. It says this righteousness of God is being revealed. It's saying the only way for every human being to come into the fullness of all they were made to be and to come into God's presence and find life and hope and eternal life is uncovered in the gospel. That's why it's being revealed. It's the only place for hope. Because in Jesus we are made new. And we are brought into God's presence. We no longer have to fake. We no longer have to be under this burden hoping that our good outweighs our bad. We no longer have to hide who we really are. We no longer have to pretend that we have hope when we don't. As human beings, we are unable to obtain the goodness and the righteousness needed to be brought into right relationship with God. The fact that this says this righteousness is being revealed shows us that this righteousness is something we could never figure out or invent in our own abilities, our own talents, our own skills. The gospel is about a righteousness being revealed that comes from God to transform us as we're brought into right relationship with God. You see, to go to heaven, to have a right relationship with God, the standard is perfection. Sinless perfection. That's what it takes to go to heaven. That's what it takes to have a relationship with God. Now, we're all going to have a big problem because none of us, as I said, are sinless. None of us are perfect. So we, in our own strength and our own merits, don't qualify for heaven. We don't qualify for a relationship with God. And all the good things that we can do will never qualify us enough. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of us. We need a perfect righteousness that we don't have. And that perfect righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for your sins and my sins, when you come and you repent and you believe, his righteousness is now covering you so that you can now stand before a holy God and have relationship with him and be with him forever and ever and ever. It's because of the righteousness of Jesus. We can't manufacture that and make that happen. We are only declared righteous when we believe in Jesus and what he did at the cross. Belief in Jesus and what he did is faith. That's what faith is. And when we have that faith, the righteousness of God is applied to our lives. This is what has to happen in a person's soul for them to receive what Jesus did on the cross. It doesn't come automatically. The Bible says if you want this righteousness, you have to first repent, which is turning from your ways and turning to God, and you have to believe And it's not just an intellectual belief. It's believing into who God is, saying, I give you my whole life. I accept your invitation to be with you forever. And my whole life from here on out is going to be poured out into you. If you never ask Jesus Christ into your life, and you're here today, and if you've never ever made that decision to surrender your life and follow him, let this be the day. Let this be the day you repent and say, God, 
You know, repent sounds like this horrible word. It's gotten a bad rap. Repent's a beautiful thing. Turning to the God who made you to be renewed and restored and believe in who he is. If you have questions about this and you're wondering about this and you want someone to talk to or pray about, I encourage you just after service, we're going to have some members of our pastoral staff team over here by this cross on your left. If you want to talk to somebody about this, go over there and talk to them. Or if you have things going on in your life you want prayer for, go over and get prayer today at that cross. And if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, remember that a follower of Jesus never leaves the place of surrender and dependence. We surrender daily to God. And in that place, we find our hope. What Paul is saying in this text is, a relationship with Jesus transforms us, so let's strengthen that in our souls. That relationship places us in a family called the church, so let's give ourselves fully to that. And when we do that, this gospel is on display to a desperate and dying world, so let's give ourselves to pointing many in this world to Jesus. That is gospel hope. As a reminder of how to live a life of surrender, we at Cross you printed out a surrender prayer on a card that's available at the table as you walk out. I encourage you to grab that card. I'm going to read that prayer in a second as you leave. Uh, it's a special gift, especially for mothers. So if you're a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, please make sure you grab that card. There's plenty there. All of us need hope. And this prayer reminds us about the truth of the gospel Follower of Jesus, I encourage you to come to Jesus daily. Confess your sins to him and be honest and real with him. Stay close to him. Hear the words of, these prayer, of this prayer that's on that card. It says, Jesus, we belong to you. Yes, Jesus. I belong to you and you belong to me. I'm so weary of trying to fake goodness and appear better than I am. Who am I fooling besides myself? Help me to see the beautiful truth that nothing bad I have done renders me worthless and beyond your love, and nothing good I have done renders me worthy. Jesus, before I even knew you, you died for me. You love me. I just want to say that again. You love me. Until the sad tears become tears of joy and all is well with my soul, be near me. So I say, I love you, and I love you, and I'm praying this in your name, amen.